There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello, gentle listeners. Uh, tonight we've got a uh, special episode for you, courtesy of Luke Baxter and myself. Say hello, Luke. Hello, David. And listeners. Yes. Or listener, probably. Hello, Mum. <laughs> uh, I'm missing listening to this podcast. Anyway, um, so we've got a slightly unusual one because I did an interview with Kate Ashbrook from the Open Spaces Society in Henley, actually, which is where they're based. City of Dreams, as it's known locally, or many gated Henley. And um, so we had a nice chat about that, and we're going to run that for you. It's about access to uh, the countryside. And then we are going to propose, Luke und mich, that footpaths and rights of access, ancient rights of access, should go into cabinet. Wait, 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 wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to propose. Sorry, I'm going to propose. They should go to the cabinet. I'm going to, and Luke's going to make agree. a solid stand. <laughs> no, I'll hold my opinion. So, yes. without more ado, we're going to frame the whole conversation by an interview that I did a, you know, a couple of weeks ago with Kate Ashbrook, um, which I'm sure you will enjoy. So, over to Kate and I. Hello, everyone. Today, we've got a chance to talk about a subject dear to my heart, the way that attitudes to property and access to the countryside have worked and changed over time, and the impact that that's left on England's environment, particularly with regards to footpaths and rights of way, on which I spend an unfeasible percentage of my time. I have a very special guest to help me here, Kate Ashbrook. Kate, introduce yourself. Hello. Yes, Kate Ashbrook, General Secretary of the Open Spaces Society, which is Britain's oldest national conservation body. 
And we'll talk a bit more about the history of the society and its foundation and so on later. But could you start by just giving me an overview? What is the Open Space Society? What is it for? OK, well, the headline is that we campaign for people's rights to enjoy open spaces and public paths throughout England and Wales and in town and country. Excellent. So footpaths and other rights of way then, very important to the way we access the countryside. Where do they come from? Well, public paths go right back through history. I mean, one can say that the history of our landscape is written in our path network because they show how people used to travel, whether on foot or horseback, from A to B. And it might be a very long-distance trade route, like a salt way, or it might be a local path from the church to the to somebody's house or from somebody's house to the school or to where they worked at the farm. So you have this network of paths in a community which may show how people used to travel. Yes, it's fascinating. I think around us we have a lot of them. Uh, and I think when you follow them through, you can see connecting farms and very dispersed settlement we have around here. And there's an old Roman embankment actually near us where you can see a path that goes specifically to it. And some of these are very ancient, aren't they? Oh, yes. And they go back, when you think of the Ridgeway, the mm-hmm. Ignealed Way, right. Uh, right across England, they certainly do. And so, and Offers Dyke Path, well, it follows Offers Dyke, but I'm sure people walked along Offers Dyke. Uh, so, yeah, you're, we're talking about prehistoric times. I mean, I think that's one of the things that really excites me is that when you're walking on the Ridgeway or the Ignealed Way, you are walking in the footsteps, literally, of countless, countless generations. Absolutely. And, I mean, I live in the village of Turville in, in mm-hmm. Buckinghamshire, and there's a, an old road that goes down into the village, very sunken. And I like right. to think, you know, that's, the, uh, yes. that's kind of been worn away by the feet of, and, and carriage wheels of centuries. I think I know the one you're talking about, actually. The Holloways are absolutely wonderful, aren't they? I don't quite know why they're so exciting, but they are brilliant. They're just a a record of our history. Real sense of history, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so are there different types of rights of way, or is there just one? And if so, if there are different types, where do they come from and how are they different? Well, I mean, first of all, we, we have to... Remember that all these routes are highways in law, so that footpaths, bridleways, mm. etc., are highways just like any road, and and which is interesting because then they have the same laws. I've just now mentioned footpaths, bridleways, so there we start with a difference. First of all, I should say that the, the public rights of way were recorded on an official map uh, for the first time in uh, 1949 National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act introduced the definitive map, and then you had to claim the routes. So. Anything that's on that map is a highway, but if it's not on the map, it could still be a highway. And so that definitive map records footpaths, bridleways, um, restricted byways, byways open to all traffic. And that's an indication of the different types of usage. So the rights on a footpath are only by foot and the rights on a bridleway are horse riders, cyclists who must give way to other users. On a restricted byway, you bring in carriage drivers as well. So there are slightly different rules relating to each of them, but basically they are all highways. You can't stop them up. We have the right to pass and repass along them. And if they were highways historically, even if they're not visible on the ground, if they were not officially stopped up in law, they're still highways. Mm. You can still claim that route. So that's very interesting that they've survived for this long. And you're saying 1949 was a key date. Up until that point... Have we lost paths? Have they disappeared? Have they been expunged? How have we managed to get to this point where we still have so many of them? Well, we've lost 
a huge amount. Right. So um, we still have many, but there are probably as many that, that we do not have because they've just got forgotten about and built over or um, you know, tr- mistreated in some way. 1949 certainly was a kind of watershed point. Our ancestors <laughs> yeah. went out and, and got them recorded, got them put on the map. But there are a great many that haven't yet been recorded. Right. One of my experiences has been my mother lives in uh, Rutland, which is very open countryside, very unlike here, and there are far fewer paths. Does topography or geography or that sort of thing make a difference to survival? Yes, I th- I'm, I'm sure it does. And the east of England and the East Midlands, or Rutlands in the East Midlands, do have fewer paths. I mean, it's a great generalisation, and I think that's really to do with the Enclosure Act, mm, right. which also affects commons. The Enclosure Act took away the paths or might well have done, and if they were not kind of saved in that process, then uh, they disappeared. Mm. And there were early and big enclosures in the east of England right. in particular, that yes, area. Yes, certainly. There, I think there was a lot of parliamentary enclosure yes. in that area. Yes. Uh, the other thing I was learning about uh, Henry Repton's red books, Henry Repton, of course, as you probably know better than me, a guy who designed these lovely parklands and big estates that we have, like Capability Brown, for example. And in that, there's probably a process of exclusion there as well, isn't there, where people built these big estates and didn't want people walking across the front of them anymore. Yeah, well, and then they moved the village so they couldn't see it. Absolutely. Basically. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was all brutal, you know. Yeah. John Clare obviously wrote about it a lot. Absolutely brutal the oh, way yes. that uh, people were treated and, and their rights just completely trampled on, ignored, expunged. Yeah. Yes, I love the poetry of John Clare, actually. Yes. He's a very immediate insight into uh, uh, an ordinary person's view of what enclosure was like, what the impact was on a village. Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely an amazing yes. record, isn't it? Yes. Um, so in actual fact, in many cases, when we look at these lovely parklands, chats with whatever, which are very beautiful... Actually, there's a lot of history and a lot of pain that went into some of those, which is, I know, not a good thing to remember, maybe, but it's important, I think, as to how important yes. what the work you do is. And when you look at those parks, there's probably uh, no legal access. You know, the rights of way are not there. The park, the estate owner might make permissive paths because that's kind of easy for them. They can come and go, those permissive paths, and suit the landowner's whim. But you probably find that an awful lot of the rights of way have disappeared and, and you only can get there by paying, basically. So the history is, is in a way, one of conflict. What's the Open Space Society's history and part in that, and indeed outside the OSS, what, what are the big events that led us to try and protect these rights of way? Well, I think the founding of the Society is a pretty big event. Yeah. Although I can't say that it happened because of something very definite, but in the mid um well, in the 1860s, uh, the commons in and around London were threatened with enclosure right. and gravel extraction. And so the society was formed in order to fight those. Mm. And there was a Metropolitan Commons Act going through, which the society was very much involved in, which gave some protection to, to London commons. So uh, we claim credit for saving Hampstead Heath, Epping right. Forest, Wimbledon Common. You know, they trip off my tongue. Yeah. Um, just like that. But of course, it was absolutely huge, huge, huge battles yeah. and uh, a lot of legal work. And one of our lawyers was Robert Hunter, who was much more famous for founding the National Trust. But we had him first. He was <laughs> ours and a uh, brilliant chap. And so that was how the society formed. So I think that period is really interesting because 
um, like the 1860s were just at the end of the enclosure movement. Mm, yeah. Um, but were at the start of industrialization, railways, transport, and also people getting out into the open spaces more. So you've got kind of a whole lot of things coming together. It's not so much to do with agriculture and enclosure, it's more to do with development but also people's greater awareness. So those two things coming together, I think, were, were a bit of a catalyst, really. So that's that's a, a big moment. Uh, another big moment, I suppose, was when we formed, I suppose I have to admit that we formed the National Trust instead of becoming that landowning body ourselves. Right. Robert Hunter, Octavia Hill and others thought, you know, we need to have a landowning body in order to be effective in saving commons. And so they formed the National Trust. But the society did a great deal of... Uh, raising money to save commons and then give them to the National mm. Trust. So an awful lot of commons in Kent and Surrey mm. actually came about, um, their saving came about through the society. So that was important. I think our history is quite marked with legislation. Right. Um, so Law of Property Acts in 1925, which actually made it um, more difficult to enclose mm. a common, for instance, and also yeah. gave new public rights to commons, recognised rights to walk on certain commons. So... That was important. Um, we come on to the 1949 Act, which I mentioned about national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty, but more important because of right. the official map. But that um, came after the Kinderskark Trespass in 1932, for which I can claim no credit for the society right. at all. Uh, and it is interesting. I mean, people kind of write about that. We've got the 90th anniversary this year, so that's it is, you know, it's yes, an important event, point. Yeah. Uh, and people say, oh, you know, the ramblers and open spaces were right in there. We were not. We were saying this is going to set back the cause of access, right. you know. And we did not recognise that that direct action actually did make a, a difference. Right. Five people sent to jail quite wrongly and uh, then, a, you know, a mood among the public mm. that, that this is grossly unfair and these landowners and gamekeepers have behaved incredibly badly. And so gradually that moved towards getting greater access. Yeah which we got some in the National Parks Act. Then, you know, it's moving on. Commons had to be registered in 1965. You know, that's another can thing. I, can I stop you there just for a moment yeah. and ask you about commons? Because you've mentioned commons. Yeah, so I haven't really haven't explained what they are, actually. Them. So what, what is a what, okay, what well, are commons? commons? Commons now are land over which other people have rights. But we're not talking about rights of access particularly. We're talking about private rights uh, or rights of, of particular properties to graze animals, collect wood, right. um, collect bracken, but all for the purposes of their property. So, you know, there were the days when collecting bracken to um, make your roof or feed your... or yeah. give animals bedding, you know, all these things, or wood for the fire, or animals to graze the common so that you could eat them or get the wool off the sheep or whatever. All that is to do with your personal economy, the right. personal economy, not a anything commercial, and it's not to be commercial, it's all to do with the survival. And so this all comes, you know, goes back to the enclosures. When uh, land was enclosed, other land was meant mm. to be left for the peasants, basically, but it wasn't, you know, and, and yeah. you mentioned John Clare, you know, we know it wasn't, it should have been. So an awful lot of land went. But some commons survived, and probably more in the... Uh, north and west. There's certainly bigger commons. I mean, the north, northern commons are very big. But there are commons in every county right. in England and Wales. Every county will have a bit of common land. It's the land that survived. Yeah. And my society knew about these commons back in the 1860s, and we were campaigning for them, but they were not recorded on a register. 
Right. You know, there was nowhere where you could look it up. And it wasn't until 1965 Commons Registration Act that the registers were created. And we had three years in which to register Commons. So we so went rushing around the country. And, and the thing is that you only had three years. So you, we just put in for everything we could, slightly regardless. I mean, everybody did yeah. because we had such a short time. And if you didn't register it, then you lost it altogether. So we'd put in some that probably weren't suitable. And then there was a process for, for determining it. But right. actually, if there was no objection, to that it just went on the register so there are some on the register that probably shouldn't be so that the message generally is constant vigilance isn't it oh, absolutely you really gotta yeah really watch these at every yeah. moment and fight for them to protect yeah them. yeah i but, think well you should you should also you know say what protection do they have and that's a really good question mm-hmm. because they don't have as much as they should I mentioned the Law of Property Act. I mean, it's all, you know, history is written in these Acts of Parliament. But Law of Property Act 1925 did actually establish broadly for Commons that that you can't kind of put things up there without getting consent from, in effect, the the government. And that still exists. That provision still exists. It's changed through time. But so if you want to put a fence around the Common, you have to get the consent of the Department for Environment. But the problem is if you put up the the fence without getting consent nobody has a legal duty to do anything about it right so they're not as well protected as they should be basically and there's all sorts of loopholes in the law it relies on people to challenge yeah absolutely you've got to and you need to get you need to challenge early on you can't leave it for five years and then challenge it because the law doesn't really look kindly on people Mm. who hang around you know you've got to get on with it i mean all sorts of people have powers to do things and local authorities do but of course local authorities have no money the public does and we haven't yet i think really tested that. Right. That came in more recently, and, and we need to test it. So, you know, somebody's got a really good example of an unlawful work on a registered common, we would help them contest it. Right. I understand also there's a particularly important act that happened relatively recently, within the last 20 years. Do you want to tell me more, more about that and what oh, yeah. differences that made? That's the Commons Act 2006. So that was the first um, kind of comprehensive Commons legislation for 50 years or so um one aspect of it which is important is that it reopened the registers you know i said that we only had three years for registration back at the end of the 60s 70s which was nothing like enough and we've always wanted to have a chance to rescue those lost commons and there were a number at the time of the previous registration that didn't get put on the register because there were various court cases sort of happening about registration at the same time and one court case went the wrong way and sort of prevented a whole lot of registrations it then got overturned but by the time it was overturned it was too late to uh, um, kind of revive those those cases so this act is it's rather um, kind of grudging from the government quite right. honestly because it it says in certain counties you can re-register you can re-register uh, common land you can re-register lost commons on certain fairly limited grounds but there were only in the original um seven areas where it could happen and again it was a very short time and Mm. that period has ended december before last so now we're left in england with north yorkshire and cumbria where we can re-register lost commons and then there's the whole of wales we've got till 2027 for england 2032 for Wales. So the society has got a special project with a project officer, Francis Kerner, who's a historian, who is researching all this and putting in applications. And mostly what we're putting in, you know, they are small areas, but they are important. And if we get them on the register in due course, then the public will have the right to walk there, maybe to ride if it's um, a certain type of common, uh, and it will be, you know, have a certain amount of protection. So it is a very worthwhile project, but we're 
pretty fed up that the government has been unfair because it's also said that landowners can apply to take land off throughout right. England, not right. just the seven counties and the two counties, but throughout. So, you know, it's blatantly yeah, unfair. unfair. And there's, there's a project also about lost pathways, isn't there? Or is that the same project? Oh, that's quite different. No, yes. uh, and we're not leading on that. The Ramblers um, have a Don't mm-hmm. Lose Your Way project. Yes. Uh, and this is because in 2000... The government uh, introduced legislation which says on the 1st of January 2026, it will no longer be possible to claim paths for the map. Now, I mentioned earlier that you can claim a path, you know, through if once a highway, always a highway. So if you've got the historic evidence that uh, it was marked as a path on an enclosure award or a tithe map, you can claim it for the official map, even though it's not there. And you can do that any time. And you've always been able, for some years, you've been able to do that at any time. But now they're saying you've got to do it by the 1st of January 2026. And it may even apply to paths which we're using today. The law isn't yet clear. Yes. Well, you know, 2026, that date is now less than four years away. So the Ramblers are, uh, with the British Horse Society as well, they are um, spearheading a project to get paths on on the map. It's well worth looking at their websites to see how they're doing it because anyone can take part and... I'm sure your listeners would find it of interest. Yeah. I've, I've also taken, I've joined up, so I'm going to try and do my bit for it. But so, yes, it's very easy to join up and there's a bag of information there available. Yeah. So, yeah, I recommend it too. OK, how similar is England and the UK to other parts of the world in terms of its rights of way and common well, rights? you started by saying England and the UK, so we have to break that down. Yes. England and Wales at the moment are very similar. Things could go differently because Wales obviously can make its own legislation. It's looking at access legislation. But I think it's um, with Commons legislation, probably it's not going to look at particularly. Scotland is different already. It has the, the Land Reform Act 2003, so people have the right to walk, ride, cycle, swim, you know, all sorts of activities, kind of anywhere with um, the exceptions listed. But that doesn't mean it's physically available. It just Mm. means you have the right, but you don't have the right to break down a fence in order to get onto a piece of land. So that's quite frustrating, I think. And Scotland is actually wanting to have paths as well, or Scottish ramblers, Scottish user groups. So they're now looking at how they can get paths protected other nations really they don't have a rights of way system like we have Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure we've all followed trails in 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 the usa and in france but it's not the same as our system where the actual path the highway is public land it belongs to the public you know that now the highway authority over someone else's land it's probably would have had to have been bought if it was going to be that you know like some of the, the trails in the u.s so Nobody really has our wonderful path network. Mm. Commons are really interesting, and I do go to international conferences, and the concept of commons at these academic conferences is kind of shared, shared right. whatever. It's not just land, it might be air, it might be the internet. But you you talk about the actual lands, and they're not a bit like us, not re- registered, and it's not coming you know from a manorial system or, or a feudal system or any of that, but there is a concept of land where certain people have rights, and in right. India, for instance... You know, we've talked about the. I've talked about commons in India to Indian people. You know, and we've swapped information. and And there are similar kind yeah. of themes. Philosophically, it's kind of similar. So, it's fascinating subjects, actually. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and on a personal note, you spend must spend a lot of time on commons and footpaths and talking to people about this. Give me a couple of your favourites or one of your favourites. Oh, well, um, I'm very, very fond of Dartmoor, which uh-huh. is where I saw my campaigning right. career started on Dartmoor. And Dartmoor is one big common, really. But I 
I'm fortunate enough to own a small piece of ah. common land on Dartmoor, mm -hmm. a very steep, rocky slope with trees at the bottom and the river, Tavy at the very bottom, and um, the upper slope, which I try to manage for butterflies, with beautiful views and just a lovely place where you can wander and get lost in right. yourself, really. It's just, I love it. I'm fortunate to live in the Chilterns, and, and here the commons are very different. You know, that's mm. also interesting about the England Wales is that every part of them have different different landscapes and different sorts of commons. So the Chiltern commons, you've got... Some of these uh, ridgetop commons like Maiden's Grove, Russell's yeah. Water, where you've just got a huge open space and it's just wonderful. But you've also got the little places with the little woody places. So I live in Turville, as I've said, and we've got four commons, four commons right. in Turville. And they're all, you know, link, really, they're kind of what's left after the enclosure. But we've got Turville Heath Common, South End Common, Summer Heath and North End. And they're all, you know, little wooded commons yeah. with little open spaces and glades. And they're absolutely gorgeous. The problem is, though, with so many of these commons, that they're not being used in the traditional way. So they're not mm. being grazed. Right. All these commons, you know, were grazed, whether it was sheep, cattle, pigs, goats, whatever. And that doesn't happen now because lifestyles yeah. have changed and the people who've got rights, even if they've registered them, are not exercising them because they're going off, you know, they're commuters or they're second homers or all that. So, you know, and also yeah. there are busy roads, so you don't want to risk your animals getting killed and you don't want to get into the thing about fencing and all that. So, unfortunately, it's um, commons are changing. They're getting scrubbed over. So then one kind of, you know, thinks, well, one maybe should be pleased about that and think about rewilding but you know there's so many issues yes. about the management of commons well interestingly one of the places that i loved going to was selborne in hampshire there's a lovely common there at the top of a hill and what they're doing is using old techniques of managing it so they're grazing it they've got some cows there they're using they're cutting the wood back for undercroft and not only is it a lovely environment where you can go and you can walk but it's also a way of seeing how we used to manage yeah. the land. And where that happens, that's absolutely fantastic. Oh, that I mean, is it's wonderful. a magical area. It's absolutely fantastic. Okay, fantastic. So what's next for uh, the OSS? Well, we are trying to protect urban open spaces, particularly. I mean, right now, you know, this week, as we speak, we've had the levelling up proposals and we're, oh, yes. we're saying yes, but if you're going to level up, you've got to level up people's opportunity for green spaces yeah. uh, because they are so important. The pandemic has shown even more how important they are. And yet there's not a lot in there about how we're going to create green spaces in towns close to where people live so they don't have to battle with traffic and danger and pollution in order to enjoy a good quality space. So we're working away on that. And one of the things we encourage people to do is to try to register land as village greens. And village greens, the traditional village green, you know, you think of the maple and the, you know, the spreading chestnut tree and, you know, you're sitting in the pub, you know, on the on the grass and it's all somebody's playing cricket and all that. You can let um, start crying in a yeah, minute. Yeah, well, I know. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's the traditional village yeah. green. And we got lots of them. They had to be registered the same time as commons. And there, there, there are lots and they vary, um, of course. But actually, the definition of village green is any land that local people have used for 20 years for some kind of informal recreation without being stopped, without asking permission. Mm. So provided no signs up and nobody's actually stopped you doing it and you've done it, you can register it. The registration process is you know, fairly involved in length. You get witness statements and uh, you put it into your county or unitary council. But once the land is registered, it is protected from development right. uh, and it is a strong protection. It, it's... Victorian legislation and old words, but they're still they still hold good. And local people have rights right. there, the right of sports and pastimes that they've got. So we say to people, think about that. 
in 2013, the government brought in a rather nasty act, Growth and Infrastructure Act, which actually stopped people from being able to do that if the land was threatened with planning permission. So the big message is think about open spaces, little bits of land in your community that you've enjoyed before it's threatened, right. before it gets into the local plan for development or the neighbourhood plan. And it can, it doesn't have to be the traditional space. So it can be that scruffy bit mm-hmm. of land, you know, near the housing estate or behind the factory or whatever. If you've used it for that period and you've got evidence that people have, then try to register it. That's one thing. The other thing is that that can also be done voluntarily by a beneficent landowner without any of the evidence of use. So we're saying to local councils who own land, you know, come on, just register it and then it's protected. You right. know, So why would you not want to do that, I think? Right. And locally to us, David, here in Henley, you know, yeah. there are two pieces of land registered as village greens by Henley Town Council, as Gillett's Field, and there's also um, Freeman's Meadow just here. Right. So... You know, they've done it. A really good example. It's also happened in the north in in Scorton. We've got a few examples, but not enough. So those are things that people can do. Really important. And the other thing in England is that there is a a new kind of planning designation of local green space, which you should try to get into your neighbourhood or local plan. Again, giving some protection. But legislation for open spaces has always been weak and not very helpful. So what's next for us is to try and strengthen all that and to get people using it and really aware of what they can do. So if people want to do something practical, they don't quite know what to do, they come to you? They do. They can look at our website, which has got loads of information. But yes, they certainly come to us. We will ask them to join because we are a small charity that needs you know, need support. Well, it's cheap as um, chips. And, and then, you know, we will offer, offer help and support. We won't actually kind of go to the public inquiry for, for people, but we'll advise them on how to go yeah. about it. Yes. I have one specific question as well. One of the things I learned from you was that we own footpaths or the top two yeah. uh, spits of it. I have paths locally that I walk on find very frustrating because the farmer's ploughed it or they've grown crops all over it. It's not marked and therefore people stop using the path. Now, I realise farms have plenty to deal with and, of course, planting crops is what they do. But nonetheless, paths can simply disappear. What do, you, what do we do in that circumstance? Can we do anything? Oh, yes, absolutely. You must do something. I mean, you report any obstructions to the Highway Authority right. so, and you keep reporting it. But there's also legal action you can take. Mm. And, and our website is, has got a lot on this. If it's obstructed, you can uh, take the landowner to court. I mean, obviously, you've got to go through a whole process and be sure of your facts. If the surface is out of repair, you serve a notice on the on the county council, the unitary council, or you can um, also serve a notice where the council should have dealt with an obstruction and hasn't to make the right. council do something. So there's lots of legal things, and you can threaten all that. But don't just don't just live with it. No, you've absolutely right. got to and, and get on with it. Don't let it drift. Right. You know. So highway authorities first, if people yes. are in trouble, they can come and find information yeah. on your website. Yeah. And I will post the website link on the Thank you. post. But yeah. just for people now, the website is... oss.org.uk. Very good. Thank you, Kate. It was very nice to talk to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Great. Brilliant. <laughs> right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, everybody. Uh, welcome back. That was fascinating. That was great. really good. It was great, wasn't it? Great thought- interviewing technique. I thought you sounded unusually good in that interview, Luke. Unusually quiet. <laughs> unusually good. Sorry, I'm being rude. I'd like to oh, I see. I, you know, I'm really sorry. It was just a joke. That's hurtful. Just, That's I hurtful. know, but, you know, we like to be yeah. hurt. It keeps, makes us feel alive. Podcasters have feelings too, you know. They don't. Do they? <laughs> anyway, um, so before we go on, let's hear from our sponsors. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, now then. What we're going to propose is that footpaths are a pretty uniquely English thing and very important to the English mentality of getting out into the countryside and indeed a long and enduring love of the countryside amongst the English. Um, we have had a reasonably adjacent discussion once with Royfield, who uniquely amongst Englishmen said that uh, the countryside is just the green stuff that keeps you from the interesting Wolverhamptons of this world. <laughs> We're going to ignore that. Sadly, I don't, I don't think it's that unique. I think there are a lot of people who really haven't spent any time in the countryside. You're probably right. But lots of us do. Mm. And our footpath yeah. network is pretty unique. So we're going to talk about that. Good. They are based around the concept, footpaths, of rights of common. In England, in particular, you have a network of rights of way and private property. But people have a, an absolute right to walk on them. And the, the ruling is that the top two spits, so two spade lengths, are actually owned by the people for the people. What's that? The top two? Top two spits of land. So a spit is a spade length. Right. The top two spits of a footpath is owned by you and me, the people. <laughs> they don't get much then. <laughs> well, well ten yards. Two spits of land. Very valuable. But the point is that therefore yeah. we're allowed access to it. Obviously we can't cart it away and make ourselves, you know, a big spit in the system. Yes. Now Rights of common, Luke. We also have a deal of common land. There's not very much of it left, as Kate and I discussed, but there is about 3% of England and Wales is common land over which you have open access. Um, so those are basically... That includes places in London, like Blackheath Common and places like that in London, are they? Indeed, and Epping yeah, Forest. Because they're it? not royal parks, are they? Ah, well, there is a difference with royal parks yeah. because one of the one of the movements actually is to get crown lands to be open access. And why wouldn't they be? Yeah, the monarchy is a dead yeah. institution, and that ought to be just common land, and uh, we ought to just show the monarchy the door, as I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, and uh, take the take the land back into the ownership of the people. Power to the people. Um, although, of course, you know they are a tourist attraction, so I suppose they still have some rolling life back anyway uh so <laughs> rights of common were there because throughout our history actually again as probably we've discussed kate uh, there is a different approach to private property this idea we have now of get off my land this absolute right of property it's mine not yours you can't have anything to do with it it's all mine is actually pretty recent in the past a lot of land was owned by somebody but people had rights to use its resources, the rest of the community, essentially. So I'm going to give you a quick quiz. Okay, are you ready? Right. Pencil poise? Yes. Okay. What percentage of the population owns 50% of England? Two. Two percent. Uh, optimistic. 0.06%. 
Blimey. Okay. So a very small number of people own a lot uh, of our land. Yeah. Rights of yeah. common then. Are you ready? Yeah. One of the rights was to cut turf. Why would you cut turf? And what is the right called? Turfage. That's a good guess. Utterly completely wrong, obviously, but yeah. Right. And, and you're cutting turf like a cricket to burn it? No. To burn it, correct. No. Very well done. Yeah. Turbury is the right, the right to cut turf. Turbury. Right. Yeah. The right to fish. Fishery. Piscary. You can see why. Piscary. Yeah. Oh. Pisces so and all that. The right to graze pigs on mast. What is that called? And what is mast? The right to mast is, isn't that leftover apples and things? From cider making? Uh, well, actually, I suppose the same sense. Actually, with uh, pigs-wise, it's usually uh, leftover acorns and beech, uh, beech nuts. Right. I could see that the word might be used more broadly. Yeah. Swinery. But swinery, good guess, obviously, panage. And then one more. Right. What is an estover? Um, leftover from the east. Mm, no. Uh, no. I mean, uh, to be honest, you're either going to know that or you're not, are you? Yeah. Well, I an estover apparently is a legal necessities allowed by law. So it's a general right. But in terms of common, it was very often the right to collect wood. But that was limited by customer practice. So you couldn't take too much because obviously if everybody was able to take as much wood as they liked, you'd mm -hmm. soon be living in the desert. So one of the rules was very often you could only take the wood that you could reach by hook or by crook. Oh, is that where it comes from? Uh, well, that is one theory. There are other theories right. about where by hook or by crook comes from, hmm. but um, that's one of them. So they limited these rights, and a limit, a right to graze or to collect wood, was often stinted. Hence the yeah. word, don't stint on the yes. cranberry sauce or whatever it might be, because a stint is a limit. So, And you could transfer stints, so you could sell the stint you had to graze, I don't know, 13 cows on a common. You could sell that stint. How interesting is this for the listener, do you think? Very. Didn't I hear a very fascinating uh, podcaster speaking about this quite recently on the History of England podcast? Mm. You're very good. You actually listen to my podcast. I, I, shall, start <laughs> I shall start calling you mum. Yes, <laughs> the, mother, the mother I should have had. <laughs> better than Lulu. <laughs> Lulu, yes, better than Lulu. You yeah. shouldn't have reminded me that I'd forgotten that. I shouldn't. Yes, that was stupid. Oh, I'll never full back now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are other rights which are kind of time delimited. So, do you know of Lamas? Oh, that does ring a bell. Oh, but yes, no. No, go on. So, Lammas is, uh, I think, a period that occurs after the 12th of August. I think right. Lammas Day is, is 12th of August. And after then, you normally you've done the harvest. And so, people then had rights to glean and rights to put their animals onto the fields, which had been yeah. cut of a sort of stubble. So, the animals could eat the stubble. Uh, ordinary people put their pig or their cow or whatever out there. They could collect the leftover seed, and that achieved a whole load of things. It achieved the most efficient possible use of resources. Nothing was wasted. It helped people survive by keeping their animals alive, but also it helped manure the, the land. Yes. So everybody wins, as it were, and there is the principle of Everyone's rights. Everyone's a winner, baby, and that's no lie. 
That is indeed. We're talking hot chocolate, aren't we? I think so. Yeah, hot chocolate. Mm. Uh, very good. So there we go. So we lose a lot of common rights in the a period known as enclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me, in words <laughs> of one syllable, what was the agricultural revolution, and what did it enable? Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. The agricultural um, revolution was partly the enclosures, so they fixed the land, and there was also quite a lot of advance in the technology that they used, such as, what's his name with the seed drill? Jethro Tull. Jethro Tull, of course. Famous 70s uh, progressive rock yeah. bang. Yeah, with the flutey. And that the, the, lots of, uh, and the turning plough. Apparently you're not meant to plough anymore, did you know that? Yes. I mean, blimey, it doesn't feel that. I mean, you just, you know, when you dig, it just feels right. I'm sorry. It feels like it's like we've been doing it. it, It's what farming is for forever. And then suddenly he's like, no, plowing's crap. No, you can't do that. Anyway, the the big myth is what Gove would have you in our island story is that we industrialized first because what we did was improve agriculture so dramatically that people were released from the land into the cities that drove domestic demand. We were able to feed those people, even though they were in cities that drove domestic demand that created industry and innovation. And hence we were the first country to industrialize. That is the story. In fact, the agricultural revolution was largely created pre enclosure. I mean, there has been enclosure since the 15th century. Thomas More complained of, sheep eating people because there was a lot of enclosure in the 15th century so it's not just parliamentary enclosure which was uh, the end of the 18th century beginning of the 19th but that is when a lot of the enclosure happened the largest tranche of it and the myth is that this created efficient consolidated farms model farms were created which spread best practice these days people think that enclosure may have increased productivity but only by 10% or so. The right. real change came from yeoman farmers at the end of the 17th century and beginning of the 18th century, who, working in common, created lots of efficiency around manuring, about uh, rotation of crops, about using early technology. Uh, and it's that that created capitalism and or contributed to capitalism. And the what we call the agricultural revolution comes later and it has relatively little impact. So the whole idea that we need big farms uh, and we need private ownership is based on a flawed history. Right. Good. Very good. God. Give me two aspects of what the landscape looks like when it's been through parliamentary enclosure as you're walking around on your ramble. Hedgerows. What kind of hedgerows? Uh, bushy ones. Mm, no. Sorry. I mean, yes, bushy. <laughs> um, what you're looking for, the type of hedge, if you've got a thick hedge, you know, six foot wide or more, yeah. uh, that is probably an ancient hedge. Yeah. Okay. It's been there forever and it's cut it's and laid. Brown. Cut and laid. Cut and laid hedge. Cut and laid hedge is probably more like to be enclosed, enclosure. Yeah. Basically, yeah. when Obviously. they enclosed these massive, great big open fields. Yeah which were worked in common across the whole community, there were no hedges. So when they split them up, they had to create divisions. And so they create 
these little hedges. In fact, in Derbyshire, if you go to, go to Derbyshire, which is, of course, England's most fantastic county, you can actually see the dry stone walls in the shape of an S because they followed the S shapes of the furrows um, in order mm. to create their enclosed fields when they split it up. But very often what you got was lots of very small fields because yeah. um, rather than the idea that you had big consolidated farms, you had lots of little small fields which were often overhung with trees and, and hedges and all the rest of it and therefore not terribly productive. So thin yes, hedges. We, we, we've got a Saxon hedge. My dad planted a Saxon oh, hedge. Yes. So it was all oh, what is plants, pre, pre-Norman plants. Oh, interesting. Very nice. And what plants yeah. are those? Um, mostly oak, I think. Lots of oak, oh. and I don't even know. I met an elm the other day, oh, a yes. fully grown oh. elm, which back. is actually alive and breathing. There's The only stretch of elm I'm aware of is actually in Brighton, I think, somewhere, or Hastings, where there's a row of elm. They can, nobody can understand how they managed to survive Dutch elm disease. Anyway, we have one, funnily enough, which we spotted the other day, but apparently, when you see elm in hedges, it grows to about four or five yeah. foot. And only at four or five foot does the Dutch elm beetle then attack it. Yeah. And so you see all this elm still get growing and getting to five foot and then just dying. Yeah. Anyway. Good luck, mate. Little ring. Yeah. Yeah, good luck, mate. You're dead. Anyway, there are two types of lowland in England. To come back to this question, what are those two types of lowland? Very low. One is planned, open land, champion land, you might call it. Yeah. And the other is ancient. Okay, so I live in the hills. I live right on the end of ancient lowland. And you can recognise ancient land because it's never been subject to open fields. So it's very often broken. It's very often upland. There are lots of little windy lanes going nowhere. So the lowlands upland? Sort of. I mean, it's but it's not highland. It's not, you know, the Pennines or... Um, Brecon Beacons or whatever. But Essex, for example, there's a lot of ancient land there that's mainly ancient land. Kent as well. So, but it's often just broken, not champion land like Leicestershire, which is, you know, pretty flat and, you know, fantastic agricultural land. So you get lots of footpaths, you get lots of winded little roads, you get nice, lots of nice thick hedges. There's often a lot of access. Whereas planned land was very good agricultural land, very good for arable. So you have these massive open fields, absolutely enormous open fields, and you get nucleated villages. So where I live, you don't get nucleated villages. You don't get big villages. You get hamlets, dispersed settlements. When they they go to that champion land and then close it, because you don't need to enclose ancient land because it's basically enclosed anyway, small fields and so on. They created these farms, these fields, and you start to get a lot of 18th century isolated farms in the middle of their sort of new plantations, as it were. So the other aspect of enclosed land is that you get these 18th, 19th century uh, isolated farms because they're just sitting in the middle of where when everybody previously had been in these nucleated uh, villages. This is really boring, isn't it? I'm really sorry. Two famous people who tried to legislate against enclosure. (laughs) (laughs) Not just say you're being really shit at this. Um, (laughs) Alfred the Great and uh, uh, Pitt the Younger. Well, it's pretty good. You know, North (laughs) Attitude. 
Oh, right. Is Thomas More, for example, who I've already Thomas mentioned. Gave you. Oh, God. He complained bitterly you about... You even give it away. Yes, I even gave you the answer. Oh, he complained bitterly about sheep-eating people because people enclosed agricultural land. Um, and, of course, you don't need many people to look after sheep. Yes. So, uh, it's the George Bombayo thing. Yes, indeed. The monoculture of the sheep. Absolutely right. He's very, very keen on giving the land back to people. Yeah. Thomas Woolsey famously right. legislated enclosure, thought it was absolutely terrible, it was throwing people out of jobs. It was, you know, removing the sense of community. And Francis Bacon was also very uh, not the not the not the painter and decorator. The, uh, no, because I right because I would have put the enclosure stuff a lot later than that. So it's sixteen sixteenth century. The biggest lump of enclosure is um, end of the eighteenth century, beginning right. of the nineteenth. Yeah. But enclosure had been going on since the fifteenth century, and of course, and back then it was much more painful because people were used to tilling the land in common much more broadly. Yeah. This idea. So you get legion enclosure riots. They're an absolute feature of rural life. So in 1608, for example, we get something called the Midlands Rising when diggers and levellers appear for the first time, go into enclosed fields and start digging, levelling hedges, trying to convert land back to tillage. And, of course, they get butchered roundly. By by the knobs. Yeah. So that's My, some of the rights, some of the history of rights of common and, and where it came from, that sort of attitude that land should be should at least be shared and useful across the community rather than be exclusive. And in the eighteenth century, one of the things you also get is, you know, these big estates. So now when we go to Chatsworth, for example, or some lovely houses and you know, we say, Ah, the National Trust isn't it great and is it awful, how woke they're becoming. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. We've got this lovely but <laughs> Those lovely works of art are built on the blood and pain of ordinary people. Because basically people got chucked off the land. People hated deer parks and all that sort of thing. And in the 15th century, it's something like 3,000 deer parks. And there was one made near us by Thomas Geoffrey Chaucer's uh, descendant. Uh, And people get chucked off the land and the big paling goes around just for the knobs to kill deer. But hasn't that been going on for, you know, like... The New Forest, weren't the Normans doing that as well? I mean, that's been going on forever. And, and you know, that you weren't allowed yeah. to shoot a deer and all that sort of stuff. It has indeed. And one of, that's one of the big restrictions on uh, liberty has been uh, the Norman forest laws. And actually, even, it was beginning to happen at the Anglo- Anglo- Anglo-Saxon period as well. But yes, something like a third of the land was royal forest under the Normans. Yeah. So that's a lot of land where your access and rights to do stuff is restricted. Nonetheless, despite all this throwing off the land, we have been left by the concept of common land with this fantastic network of footpaths. And it's a little bit difficult to understand quite how unique that is, because in some countries, as we know famously, like Scotland, Finland, Sweden, I think in Austria too, there is a right to roam. So... Uh, Norway in particular, uh, right to Rome. So you can go anywhere and you can climb a fence. The rules are that you can't come within, in some places, quite specific, 150 metres of a dwelling. Uh, mm. In Scotland, it's something vaguer, like within a reasonable distance. And that is fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, define what is a reasonable difference. You know, so that's Especially if you're Scottish. Yeah. Why, especially because if you're Scottish? 
Baxter. Well, they're fairly distant. <laughs> my, my grandfather, a reasonable distance would have been 20 yards away. Not too, much hugging. Right? Not too much hugging there. All right. Okay, reserved. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, good Calvinist. Yeah. So there are places which I think have much more openness. But actually footpaths, I think, are reasonably unique to England. Yeah. In America, for example, my understanding is there are trails which are created by the state specifically in wildlife areas, which, of course, because America is such a beautiful place, you know, there are absolutely fantastic walks available. But the idea of walking from place to place, that having a footpath just outside your door, which you can follow, which is an ancient rite, which might stretch back to prehistoric days, like, you know, the Icknield Way or the Ridgeway, that is quite alien. Even in Scotland, they don't have a definitive map of paths it's a very unique ride and i'm totally used to it and i met an australian once on the coast to coast walk and he was absolutely he was horrified by two things actually well three things he was horrified first of all by the fact that people could walk all over private property yeah if there was a footpath there thought that was terrible second thing he was horrified by was dogs in pubs right which is quite interesting yeah. I mean, I thought, you know, dog, pub, yeah, it's a natural yeah. combination. He thought it was very unhygienic. <laughs> and the third thing he was horrified by was Darlington. Right. Because he t- decided to take a break from this walk and go to look at a lovely historic town. And he chose, let me go, I could go to Richmond or I could go to Pickering or I could go to York. No, let's go to Darlington. Anyway. As far as I know, I've never been to Darlington, but I will mock Darlington to my heart's content, if you like. Um, okay. Although it's got to be said, Darlington speaks very highly of you, and it does. <laughs> Darling, <a> very good. <laughs> does a very good railway museum. Actually, Ooh, yeah. how have I missed it? Yes, you knew. I love railway museums. Ah, oh, fantastic! Big science. One of the things, about, one of the things about these conversations is often that they're quite one-sided in my experience because I stand on one side of the fence, saying more yeah. access. You know, we must have access to our land. If land, we all. Uh, have a right in a uh, concern in but you know the land a poor landowner gets exactly forgotten yep and of course well actually they don't get forgotten i mean the the, the balance of law and right is entirely on the side of the landowner but nonetheless it's worth noting they have a difficult time you know people leave crap all over their lands yeah people dump stuff and that's and they don't get paid to clear it up so you can kind of understand. And they have to upkeep all the fences and the gateways. And like my friend with his butterflies, you know, he's got very, very amazing conservation on his land. Um, and, you know, they've not put any spray or anything sort of vaguely nasty on their land for years and years and years. And, um, you know, and they they have footpaths going all over the place. And they are quite restrictive about you know sending people, just making sure they stick to the path. Like yeah. American werewolf in London. Not American. Are they big on paths in American War? Uh, Have you not American seen American werewolf in London? I thought they went into a pub. Yes, they go into a pub and they go, you know, don't don't leave the path. And then they, they're walking along <laughs> and they go, where's the path? Like, oh. where, where do they come? Where do they come from with that accent? They're American. I was I was Correct. using all my full gamut of. of <laughs> of accents, Yorkshire and American, all in one little, and a bit of werewolf. That was werewolf. <laughs> Gentle listeners, quiz for you. 
which bit of America was Luke imitating? Uh, <laughs> which bit of Yorkshire? It was Darlington, actually. It was my Darlington accent. <laughs> uh, okay. um, uh, so, you, there is something which is, was recently updated called the Countryside Code. Right. Uh, and oh, I God, am quiz, isn't it? Bloody hell. Uh, yeah. It's going to be. I'm going to give you some... Because this is the two-way thing, essentially, is the I'm message. I'm going to get you back it? at this. If we want more access to the countryside for more people, yeah. then we've got to treat the countryside in the right way. I have a theory about that, which we can come to when I talk about right to roam. So what three things should you bear in mind when you access the countryside? <laughs> I'm going to give you the answers. Never get them right. You don't, be nice. Be matching. Be nice. What? Shut the gates. And Say throw... hello. What? Be nice. Say hello. Share the space. Say okay. hello. Say hello. It's be nice. This is for people visiting. Be nice, but also for people, the landowners. Be nice. Say hello. Share the space. I think it's a fine sentiment. Very un-English. Okay. Start, people start saying hello to me. I go, whoa. You, you can walk around oh, here. Oh, come but... on. If you meet ramblers, it yeah. is de rigueur to say hello. Oh, no. Talk about the web. I'm normally listening to you a know. podcast. Oh, you know, I, that's terrible. People walking with headphones on make me want to eviscerate. Right. That's that's where I listen to the history of England all the time. As well, I stop listening to the history of England and listen to the birds singing <laughs> and the, the grass growing. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, so, oh, is that the quiz on? Uh, on open access land. I do think things what? like closing gates and, and not littering the land, there would be better advice than say hello. <laughs> no, yeah, they do. Nonsense. They do all that. I right. think what they're saying, and I like this sort of stuff, is, look, you are in a common space. You are in a shared space. Enjoy it and make it a happy space. I'm sorry, I like now, it. Here's a question But they do you. all that. Yes, if, you, if you were to climb a gate, what should you remember? Uh, well, if it's closed, yeah, then it should remain closed. Um, I or you should, if you open it, you should close it when you go through it. You should leave it as you found it. And also, if you do climb a coat, uh, climb a gate, complain to the farmer no. who's effectively, if you can't get through it, is effectively blocking a right of way. No, climb it on the hinge side so you don't make the drag. No, but I'm making my point oh. that he should have it locked. You shouldn't have to climb it at all. Right. If it's on a footpath. Because of the okay. disabled. Yeah. And because of the disabled. Indeed. Sorry, that's going to sound really yeah. random. We were discussing <laughs> disabled <laughs> rights to ramble. <laughs> and I found a very okay. horrible article about somebody saying that they shouldn't have the right to ramble at all. Uh, and my daughters are disabled. So I'm definitely not on his side. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I don't want to sound like a complete bigot. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What should you do if you are threatened by livestock? Say hello. And you have a dog. Is it say hello, be no, nice? No. Is it? <laughs> Don't be talking about being nice, Luke. <laughs> what should you do if you've got a dog with you and you're threatened by livestock, by cows, for example? I presume your dog is on a leap. Release the dog so defend you against the, the cow. Is it that? Release your dog because they'll chase the dog rather than you. Yeah. is the theory. Oh, really? When my That's dog, what you're supposed to do. That is supposed, <laughs> what you're supposed to do. Let your dog off the leave if you feel threatened by livestock or horses. Do not, get, not, do not risk getting hurt protecting your dog. I'm quoting from the Countryside Code. What happens if your dog then savages the, 
the sheep or the, the, the animal. Well, you are under threat, basically, they're saying the balance is mm, humans rather than cows. Yes, but I mean, which doesn't what, seem like a bad equation to me. Does your average person know whether they are genuinely under threat by an animal? Oh, come on. If you get a herd of cows that come towards you. Of course, I've heard of cows. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Boom and indeed. <laughs> yeah. If you get a bunch of cows coming towards you at speed, you feel threatened. Oh, you feel threatened, but are you threatened? This is. Yes. This is wokery. No, no, people have been, people have been trampled by cows. Yes, I know, I know. Yeah. yeah. So they're chasing the dog, not you, mm-hmm. is what they're So let the dog off the lead. When this has happened to me, guess where my dog goes as soon as I let him off the lead? <laughs> Between your legs. Hard Correct! Really. Is he still friend the push you, push you. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... it's right behind me, David. <laughs> Frankly useless. Yeah. Anyway, I've go. seen Dylan. I, I, um, I would have my money on the cows. I'd have my money on the cows. <laughs> um, although I think the thing, if you get unfriendly cows, the thing to remember is they're herbivores. You're the world's most successful predator. Yes. Act accordingly. Landowners. The one bit... Sorry? Well, bite them. them. Mow them down. Well, no, run up to them shouting and screaming and reminding them that they're herbivores yeah. and you're an extremely efficient predator. And they'll run away. None of this is nice. Unless None of this is nice. We've oh, forgotten to be nice. They're, be nice to people. Right. What an abuse cows. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> abuse cows. If they abuse you. You have a right to defend yourself again. <laughs> if you're scared of sheep, don't be so so feeble. Anyway, well, you should see our uh, ram. Your our ram would have you. He's dangerous. That is true. That is true. If it is a ram, yeah, yeah. run like believe. So use uh, advice from no, Lando. Is only one. Sorry, of that's not a good. Don't run away from a lamb. Right. Don't run away from a ram. Yeah. Okay. Face Sandy up ground. Yeah. Some advice we had in Banff National Park in Canada. Actually, beautiful Banff. We read a leaflet about dealing with bears mm. and it said if you are being attacked by a bear stand still and assess the situation really? <laughs> you know it is the only time in my life i've really seen my father laugh <laughs> he absolutely laugh. and he, he, he didn't laugh a lot my dad he was a lovely chap but didn't laugh a lot uh, he absolutely wet himself <laughs> uh, i'm told it's good advice but mm. Yeah. It takes a bit of Anyway, advice for landowners, use friendly language if you need to use signs to tell visitors what they can or cannot do. Yeah. So we have a sign near us. We have lots of signs near us. I and mean, in fact, we got very cross with the landowner. We had a go at him. Where the vast quantities of un- ugly signs went up saying, uh, you are on private property, do not move. We don't like private property. Keep your dog on a lead, which you don't have to do. You have to keep your dog under control, not on a lead, unless you're in a farm yet or amongst livestock. Uh, So all these signs. And then there's another estate where they put signs up, which are quite fun. Things like, I don't know, uh, you know, take nothing away but your love of the countryside or, you know, leave nothing but your good thoughts. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. And I feel completely different about, you know, obeying those rules. And that landowner, I yeah. feel, yeah, I want to do this. this. is great. They're treating me like a human being, you know, 
And I think it's really important that language and relationship, the be nice thing, makes a massive difference. Yeah. So uh, one, only one more thing to cover before we, we have a d- debate, full and frank, exchange of views. The National Trust seems to me embodies that the love of, uh, of rights of access, the love of common rights. It was founded in 1895 by three people. Do you know the name of any of those three people? William Morris. No. Do you know anything? <laughs> Very little. What, what is the pointy thing in the middle of your face? <laughs> it's not, very, not even very pointy. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know who the founders of the National Trust are. And oh, I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. I'm, I'm going I'm, to quiz you on rave culture. I mean, you know, I yeah, rave culture. I think I can tell you about rave culture. True. Yeah. Anyway, the National Trust was founded in 1895 by Octavia Hill, oh, of Sir Robert Hunter, Who? and Canon Hardwick Rawnsley. I must admit, the only one of those I've, I've got any <laughs> right to know is Octavia Hill, I must admit. Canon Hardwick Who? Rawnsley. Rawnsley. <laughs> oh, it's on the tip of everybody's lips, mate. Uh, yeah. Where were the first five acres of National oh. Trust land? <laughs> uh, London. Darlington. Nope. It no. was in Wales. Dinas Ole, it was called. I think it's on the coast, actually. Is that the right pronunciation? I've absolutely no idea. I did look it up and try to do my best. Right. Fiona. So there we go. I put it to you, Luke Baxter, that access rights in the form of footpaths is pretty unique to England and is deeply embedded in the national psyche as one of the things we value and use incredibly widely. So things like the Ramblers Association, for example, as I mean, rambling, of course, is not specific uh, to England. My brother runs lots of hiking groups in California, but the Ramblers Association is actually a very powerful organization with 100,000 members. It's only so half, I put it half the number of the camera. Yes, the beer, the beer drinkers. True. There are more yeah. beer drinkers than Ramblers. Yes. So. Well, I'll drink to that. I'll <laughs> drink my black, my my bottle of black sheep, which I'm uh, yeah. of the family. Anyway, so yes, obviously I'm right, aren't I? Uh, no, no. I mean, I think you. Yeah, so what are we saying? So footpaths should go into the cabinet, or the we are saying footpaths and rights of access, um, the tradition of common rights should go into the football because it's, the yes, I, I would be you know i'm not royfield um no but you know, you know standing up for royfield and the you know city dwellers yeah. um i would you know there must be a big proportion of the population who have never been on a footpath or you know or have they probably haven't even realized they're on a footpath we like my family ride, but I mean, I wouldn't say that, you know, the, the bridal ways is quite a specific sort of thing for specific type of people. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually convinced. I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, if we're going to go full right to Rome, I think that uh-huh. might be more interesting, but um, yes. Well, of course, right to Rome is a right in England. It isn't a right. No, I can't no. go in the cabinet, but I would like to put it there. Yeah. Because you know, I would like to just walk across the field out the back. I what uh, I, I I don't like having to drive to go to a footpath. No, indeed not. Which annoys me. Or walking along a road is one of the joys of living in England. It seems to me that 
for many people, a footpath is right outside their door. Yeah, not for me. Within very easy distance without so driving. That, not for me, so it's not going in the cabinet. <laughs> 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 yeah, community rights. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I mean, footpaths are very common and indeed common as frequently used in towns. So, for example, your local park, the um, Epping Forest was one of the big first battles to preserve common land that was going to be uh, developed. Yeah. Um, and London is absolutely famous for its green spaces. Yeah. But aren't they all owned by the Queen? Uh, no. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Hampstead Heath, and that's, is that common? Hampstead Heath is owned, no, that's definitely common, and Epping Forest is, yeah. is common. Yeah. Well, no. yes, of course. Well, no, I, no, I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to say, you know, this is, it's, it's a, lots of people walk all over the place um, in lots of different countries, and there might be a slightly sort of funny, quirky thing about the English footpath, but I, I, I can't say that, it, you know, that it makes it's an astoundingly thing that made England. There you go. We, we agree too often. We agree too often. I think it's quite good to have yeah, a it match, you know. So surely, uh, in order to make this a unique thing that um, belongs in the cabinet, we ought to have a right to roam. So an absolute right to climb any fence, yeah. ford any street, climb any climb mountain. mountain. Indeed. Yeah. I put it to you, Luke. Because look, I will tell well, we, you that I have been off by landowners yeah. and being on the receiving end vituperation about yeah. walking for 50 of my eight, eight, 58 years. Yeah. And it seems to me that we're never going to get away from it. You know, people, uh, there's no doubt that there's got to be a two-way thing mm. between walkers and landowners. You know, the boot is definitely not on just on one foot off t'other. But with this has been going on for ages. So we've got to change the paradigm. And it seems to me that the more access you give to people, the more ownership of the land, yeah. the more respect they will have for the land. And that thing about the signs, for example, I come across a friendly sign that makes me feel welcome and part of it. I'm going to want to look after that area. Mm. I'm not going to want to do anything bad. If I come across all these signs that are telling me I'm a private property and I can yeah. sod off, yeah. then I don't You're trespassing. I don't yeah. that stuff it, we've got to change the paradigm we've got to change the relationship and say to landowners right there is an absolute right for people to roam yeah you need to be supported so there ought to be help for farmers to remove litter we need to really push the countryside code to make sure that people adhere to it there's always going to be criminals or people yeah. do the wrong thing but we need to promote that damn code yeah. and make sure it's absolutely embedded in people's hearts Anyway, I put it to you that we've got to change the paradigm. It's been going on forever, this Damanaz thing, yep. and it does nobody any good. You get my backing. So we're putting a hypothetical, non-existent right to roam in the cabinet. Tell you what, we will put we will put footpaths in the cabinet when we've earned the right to roam to make them irrelevant. Madness. Yep. Okay, I think we've warbled enough because everyone's listening. Yes. <laughs> we need to pause for a second for our wonderful uh, Facebook roundup. Okay, thanks. And so to the Facebook roundup. As it turns out, the voting for the beer episode was more interesting than what one might have expected. I imagine that this one was going to be something of a slam dunk. Dunking into beer. Ugh. Sorry, where was I? Ah, yes, the vote. Which was a bit of a close thing in the end. So how did it carve up? Well, 
we had 35 votes for, yes, of course, always room in the cabinet for Nuki Brown. But 26 votes, so just nine fewer for, nah, the world's full of beer drinkers. The English are just like all the rest. Then five votes for, who knows, it's not a real big fish. Might as well just have a beer. Don't know what these accents are quite doing. (laughs) One thing these figures do tell us is that our electorate is flagging a little. We used to have a higher overall turnout. We have recently had lots of new people join the Facebook group, and it's great to have you on board, but do feel very welcome to join in by voting and commenting. The polls for all our episodes are still open, and retrospective voting is absolutely fine. And you can find the poll on the most recent episode pinned to the top of the Facebook group. But enough of that. What can explain the fact that people don't feel convinced that beer is a thing that made England. A number of people, including Catherine with a C, Michelle, Catherine with a K and a Y, Stephen, Marilyn, Rob, John, Mandy, Lonnie, OK, pretty much everybody, made the point that it's not so much beer that has made England and is distinctively English, but the pub. And well, OK, that is a pretty solid point, I admit. But I am glad that beer managed to get into the cabinet. The cabinet would be a dull place if one couldn't sup on a pint as you chewed the fat with Margaret Thatcher and Athelstan as the archer's tune crackles over the airwaves. So what else has been going on over at TTME FB Towers? (laughs) Royfield made a rare appearance and posted an article about the 70s northern soul scene. Stephen has been sharing some interesting stuff recently about the character of English people and got a discussion going about honesty and openness. It's a great read about taboo subjects in conversation that somehow descended into people posting pictures of cars. As the driver of an electric smugmobile, I didn't get involved and potentially admitted a very English tut at the behaviour of the petrol heads. Bill wanted to know from the English members where the boundaries of Northern England lay, which apparently is an entirely relative thing. And as Catherine says, it all depends where the person is from. Bill, take it from me. It's at the Watford Gap, Northamptonshire. The clue is in the name, Northamptonshire. But the comment that got people most exercised was from Rob, and it was about everyone's latest obsession, the online game Wordle. As an Australian, Rob gets his wordles done first, and then, in something of a spoiler for the rest of us, he posted that he was worried that us poor Brits wouldn't get the word humour, with no U, due to our quirky spelling rules that have been completely resolved in America by Webster's revisions, where English is spelled entirely logically from sea to shining sea. But enough about that as it would be thoroughly tedious if I brought that up and went through all the things that Webster missed. See what I did there? I didn't do a proper thanks for all the wonderful executive producers in the main episode, and Marilyn, Eric, Michelle, Kurt, Rowena, Steve, Rochelle and Glassy Witch, consider yourselves thanked, as well as all our patrons. If you would like to join their hallowed ranks, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash T-T-M-E. And after that wonderful Facebook roundup, one of the best, I'd say, we need to thank our 
Patreons. Um, and yes, of course, if anyone wants to join us, they, it's TTM Patreons forward slash TTME or something. I haven't got the full list of Patreons in front of me. You know who you are. You know that we love you and you know that we appreciate you. Do you actually love them? Yeah, well, one of them is my wife, so yes. Okay, we love your wife. Well, not we love my wife. Well, no, I say not we love you. <laughs> I love my wife. We <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> right, thank you very much. That was great, Dave. Fascinating. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, brilliant. And these are the things that made England. England and St. George. These are the things that made England. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.